Letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi. Presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood. Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi. Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Episode 7 Unfinished Work and Unfulfilled Duties. Chris pressed on with his gigantic memoir of his mother and father, Kathleen and Frank. It was the longest book he published in his lifetime. As a teenager, he had felt suffocated by his mother's grief when she was widowed and angry that she wouldn't be consoled by him. Now, reading her diaries, nearly a decade after her death, he began to be reconciled with her. He painted her freshness and vivacity with tenderness. He observed in his diary that he'd never really known his father and that he was getting to know him for the first time through his parents' letters and through Kathleen's diaries. But considering that he was 10 when his father died, it might be more accurate to say he had amnesia. I've read his mother's diaries and they show how close Chris and his father were. To me, it seemed as if Chris had decided on amnesia or maybe call it anesthesia to avoid a great deal of pain. Now, the subject of his parents was deep and difficult for him. Rereading Kathleen and Frank, I couldn't help noticing certain similarities between Kathleen and Don. How sensitive they both were, how complicated, how much more interesting and difficult than all other company, how beautiful to look at. And when I pointed out these similarities to Don, he chuckled and bloomed. I never noticed that before. Yes, it shocks me at the same time because I know it's true. Chris wrote of his mother in her youth. She needs an unusual man, one who will never take her for granted, who will be fascinated by her contradictions, who will patiently explore her to the depths. His father's nickname for his mother was Kitty. Chris must have heard this often as a little boy. The family he had lost was intimate and enveloping, uncannily in tune with itself, emotionally intuitive. They had conducted the same very private, sometimes coded conversations that Chris and Don conducted and shared the same sense of affectionate conspiracy against the world. The family he had lost was very much like the family he was trying to make or hold together with Don. In 1967, the year before he decided to collaborate with Don, adapting a meeting by the river, Chris had actually begun adapting the novel with the writer and director Jim Bridges. Bridges and his companion, the actor Jack Larson, had been close friends of Chris and Don since the mid-1950s. Bridges came to prominence in the 1970s when he directed and co-wrote screenplays for The Paper Chase, Urban Cowboy, and later he did Mike's Murder and Bright Lights, Big City. 
Larson's best known for playing Jimmy Olsen in The Adventures of Superman, the original 1950s TV series. Bridges hadn't had time to continue the writing collaboration, but Chris thought he was a possible director for the Isherwood Bacardi script. Friday, October 18th, 1968, Santa Monica. Darling Fur, two dear letters arrived today, Tuesday and Wednesday. This doubtless means no letter tomorrow, but Dub will reread them with kisses then and on Sunday. I'm glad you told Tony about the play, but if he didn't ask to read it, I wouldn't offer it to him. That might just be his loss later. Anyhow, let's see what we can do with it here first. I talked about it some more to Jim last night. Had supper with the two of them, cooked by Jack. They are feeling very poor. They say they have spent nearly $20,000 on fixing up the house. It is nearly finished now. Jim doesn't want to have to do any more movie work. He longs to direct. He talks about arranging for a reading of our play, but the awful question remains. Who in hell is there to play the brothers, Patrick and Oliver? Jack and Jim are also convinced that our accountant Malton is not only inefficient but headed for the penitentiary as he has been gambling wildly with and on behalf of Mickey Rooney. I don't quite see how he can play any dirty tricks on us, but the animals must keep on the alert. I'm very happy to detect a happier note in Kitty's letters. I'd begun to fear the whole visit was being a flop. Paul Bowles called and he is settled with his friend Mohammed Marabet at the Shangri-La in Santa Monica. But the friend has said he daren't drive in our traffic and is anyhow homesick and may leave soon and return to Morocco. So I told Paul I will see him very soon and maybe come sometimes to drive him to market as he does all cooking at home and hasn't the transportation. It is a drag. The one has to talk French or Spanish to the friend. A student from the college where Paul is teaching comes to drive him to his classes. Paul tells me that he has seen Tennessee and that Mike Steen is very much in command there. This must mean that Mike doesn't want Ten to see us. I shall call, however. I heard through Jack that Paul told them how he and Oliver Evans had gone up to see Ten and how Mike Steen had made them drunk. He pours drinks relentlessly, according to Paul, and doesn't drink himself. And on the way home... Oliver Evans was driving madly and was signalled by cops and made a run for it and was caught and protested violently and was finally taken away in handcuffs. I think I should call Oliver and sympathise. I guess he has himself a drunk driving sentence, maybe with jail. Last night, I saw inadmissible evidence. I went because I fear it can't run long. It was at the plaza in the village. As a film, I thought it was truly brilliant, and that Anthony had made everything out of it that could possibly be made. And I guess I admire Williamson too, though I don't warm to him much and cannot imagine that he will be particularly interesting as Hamlet. All that was wrong, I blame on Osborne's play and screenplay. I don't think the queer thing works, although one saw why it is there. Williamson is being confronted by a reverse image of his life, so to speak. Jill Bennett is really extraordinary-looking, and knows. I thought a lot of the acting was brilliant. 
And that supper party was about the best thing of its kind I've ever seen on the screen with the wooden bowls. That's real comedy and shows you how crude such scenes are as a rule. Please tell Anthony how much I liked it. The weather is less good today, but Drum will be taken down to the beach and trotted and made to go to the gym later. It's a long time since I had as much trouble with a piece of writing as I'm having with this book. This morning, I saw that I must scrap it all and start over. What you say about Patrick is very true, and maybe I am wrong, but we'll talk it over. I just got a feeling that the play might seem kind of lopsided if Patrick doesn't speak. All Dobbin's love to his darling, who is Dub's sole reason for doing everything, from trotting to page blotting. Always remember that Dub is thinking of his dear with so much love and lavishing kisses on his sacred basket spot. X, 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 H. I'd just sealed this up when Ed Rocher called. The girl who was with him and works for Rudy Gernreich, named Leon Bing, was so impressed by your drawing of Ed that she wants to be drawn. I said you'd call when you got back. Asking Don to pass on his praise of inadmissible evidence was a delicate attempt to participate in the friendship with Paige. Maybe this made Don feel the status quo was approved. In any case, as Don's second London visit with Paige stretched on, his letters home became more open about the friendship. Then, just as Don prepared to return home, Paige tested his patience as well as Chris's by asking Don to draw a new poster for Hotel in Amsterdam. Paul Schofield was leaving the play to be replaced by Kenneth Hay. Friday, October the 25th, 1968, London. Worshipped glossy hoof. To my surprise and enormous relief, I very much enjoyed Hotel in Amsterdam last night, in spite of a few of the performances which seemed quite wrong, including Schofield's. He gives an eccentric, mannered and obviously virtuoso performance which is never dull and never right. I'm sure, like Olivier, he knows so much about acting that he can never again give a good, straight, simple performance. But the play itself is fascinating on stage, full of atmosphere and sadness, very like Chekhov sometimes. I had to go backstage afterwards because I was sitting in house seats and I noticed that the curtain calls, Schofield was straining to see who occupied them, and I thought, if you recognise me, it might cause a situation if I didn't go back, since he probably knows I'm staying with Anthony, and they're about to do this TV show together. He was very friendly and pleased that I came back, so I guess it was good. Martin Hensler, John Gielgud's friend, came to the theatre with me, though he'd already seen it. I've never before spent very much time with Martin, except when I drew him and then we hardly talked. So it was a pleasant surprise for me last night to realise I really like him. Underneath the bad English and vain exterior is somebody quite friendly and aware, even quite intelligent. We went to the Melita, and Anthony and Eleanor Fazan, she played Nicole Williamson's wife in the film of Inadmissible, joined us later for dinner. She is a very nice woman. You'd like her, I'm sure. She's also a choreographer and Nigel Davenport's mistress. I hope you liked her in the film as much as I did. I think she looks a lot like Jean Moreau. <laughs> 
so characteristic of my adventures in London, especially those having anything to do with Antony. This morning only, knowing full well I'm going on Tuesday, he had the idea that I should do a drawing of Kenneth Hay for the poster of Hotel in Amsterdam when Schofield leaves. I'm supposed to be paid properly this time because it's a successful West End production now. Anyway, a sitting has been set up for Monday afternoon. Wouldn't you know it wouldn't be set up over the weekend? So more of Kitty's frantic last-minute pencil-waving. Nevertheless, regardless of the outcome of the sitting, Kitty is determined to get onto his Tuesday plane. This letter will barely arrive home before Kitty, so the next news old dub will have of him will be delivered in Pusson. He is so looking forward to his dear basket and that warm, giant rump cushion. With tender, loving cat thoughts. Papaws. But Bacardi delayed his return. Tuesday. Deep morning. October 29, 1968. Santa Monica. Darling, faithless fur. As soon as the bad old phone rang, Dubbin knew... Later, when Kitty's letter from last Friday came, speaking of Kitty's certain arrival, a few tears fell. At least one would have sworn they were tears, but doubtless it was only room, since the University of Cats at Los Angeles absolutely assures us that Dobbins have no feelings or hearts, and we needn't worry how we treat them. Soviet scientists have, it is rumoured, declared that Dobbs not only have hearts, but that they are so enormous that the kittens never noticed them. They were actually inside one and thought it was the red room at El Caballo. Anyhow, Rubble promises to be brave and not feel sorry for himself, like old Joe Mazalink, the public nuisance, because, after all, what could be stupider than a thing that can't feel being sorry for a thing with no feelings? Tonight I'm going with Gavin Lambert to see the Nazarene. Tomorrow we are both having dinner with Jim Bridges and Jack Larson. This was arranged yesterday and you were invited. Jim wants to have a reading of the play, but I told him to wait and not set it up until you were back and we can discuss it. I mean, discuss who we get to read it and all the diplomacy and care needed not to raise false hopes. Since Anthony has now read the play, what about Nicholas Thompson and Bob Register, who both begged to see it? There are the most serious objections to both, and neither one of them knows that it is finished, even. But I was impressed by Nicholas as a true eager beaver. As for Bob, he is simply significant as a flea in Tony's, Neil's, and I guess Antony's ear. This isn't really a suggestion, even. Just turn it around in your head, as long as you were there. It is now thought that Hubert Humphrey might just squeeze through against Richard Nixon, but it would be very, very close so many people have vowed not to vote that I doubt it. Darling, precious treasure of my old life, don't please think of Grub as a drag. Do everything in London that you feel you should or want to. Nagin will be waiting and chewing quietly. XXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXX
In London, Page had only begun to read the script of A Meeting by the River. The upshot was stormy and confusing. Wednesday, October the 30th, 1968, London. Dearest Silkmane, his disappointed neigh on the telephone yesterday when Kitty said he wasn't coming home yet nearly broke Silly Cat's heart. But still it is good that Kitty doesn't leave London feeling he's leaving behind unfinished work and unfulfilled duties. His drawing of Kenneth Hay has turned out well. My still being in London will make it easier to get proper money out of Oscar Lewinstein for the drawing. Also, I'm drawing Ron Katai tomorrow morning and Robert Medley in the afternoon. I think Anthony is quite impressed by the play and rather intrigued by it too. I can hear wheels going around in his head even. He dared, without saying a word to me about it, to take the play off to the court on Monday. I'd left early to draw Colin Spencer and left the play in the flat because Anthony had only read half of it on Sunday and let an assistant there read it. When Anthony told me this on Monday night, I was furious and lost my temper in a way I've never done with him before. As you can imagine, he was very surprised. We had quite an argument. This is another reason why I didn't want to leave yesterday in a cloud of ill feeling. Apparently, the assistant adored it, though, even called after midnight on Monday to enthuse about it, but I was still so cross I wouldn't speak to him. I'm sure a production at the Royal Court could and would be arranged if we wanted it. But as far as I'm concerned, we don't. Anyway, not without the very best cast and director. Anthony has not yet said anything about wanting to direct it himself, but I'll bet he's seriously considering it. He suggested Peter O'Toole for Patrick or Dirk Bogard, though I said I thought him too old. The only criticisms he's come up with so far are, one, he thinks it is occasionally too underlined, too on the nose. He would prefer a slightly less straightforward approach in a few of the speeches. I will try to get him to specify. Two, the convulsive laughter with which the play ends is, practically speaking, impossible for most actors at least impossible to produce night after night. Jack Larson also said the same thing to me on the phone before I left. He said it's an actor's nightmare, far worse than having to cry. I do see why, too, but don't feel it would be difficult to change, if you agree. Last night, look back in anger opened officially. I dreaded going, but do think the performance was the best I've seen. The notices this morning are very good indeed. I've only read the Times and Mail, both good, especially the Mail. Osborne is likened to Ibsen, of all people, and I hear the others are all favourable too. Anthony is excited and pleased. He has gotten a lot of personal praise for the production. David Hockney and Peter Schlesinger were also there, and the four of us had a wonderful meal at the Hungry Horse, Kitty's favourite restaurant, Natch. Kitty had kedgeree and steak and kidney pudding. David and Peter were very sweet, as usual. I'm having tea today with Whiston, who's leaving tomorrow and is understandably booked up all other times. He let out a cry of surprise and delight when I called him, which warmed a kitten's heart. I will see the Gielgud Alan Bennett play 40 years on on Saturday and also be able to see a big Balthus show at the Tate. Richard Buckle gave me a preview of the Beaton show at the National Portrait Gallery Monday evening. 
The gala party is tonight, but I don't think I will go, though Richard wants me to. The show is wonderful, and Richard has done a very good job of mounting it. Kitty's one major criticism of the show is the postage stamp size of Dubbin's photograph, and it is not even one of the good ones of him. Cecil has taken beautiful pictures of the old nag, but the one in the show has him having his granny dub grin, which doesn't fool anybody, at least not any cat. Kitty must fly to his tub and wash his fur for Whiston. Don't give up on old Kitty. He really will be on the plane Monday. Besides longing for his loved Hyde, he has to cast his small cat vote in the presidential election. Kitty loves his dear horse so very much, with basketfuls of furred love and musical purrs. Pink pads. Kiss, 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 kiss. Page told me that he had finished reading the play soon after his colleague at the Royal Court, a playwright and director called Nicholas Wright. He also told me that he was frank with Don. He didn't feel the play could work. The Animals, a selection from the book The Animals, Love Letters Between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood. Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi. Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Join us for Episode 8, Our Play. Meanwhile, you can hear the trailer for A Meeting by the River at the end of these credits. The Animals Podcast is produced by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Recorded in London at the Rhythm Studio with James Carey and at Heavy Entertainment with David Roper. Post-production by Toma Run. Editing by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Website by Zenobi Purvis. Podcast conceived by Joe Rodota with Catherine Bucknell. We would like to thank the Huntington Library, San Marino, California, and the Wiley Agency. Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, Penguin Random House, and Farrah Strauss and Giroux donated rights for this podcast, which is underwritten by the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. Special thanks to cast and creatives for donating time to this podcast. Copyright Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, and The Animals Podcast 2017. World War II, Christopher Isherwood, a pacifist, spent a year in a California monastery before deciding that he couldn't take vows as a Hindu monk. Twenty-five years later, he published a novel about the continuing struggle between his two selves, the man who craved spiritual illumination and the man who craved the fulfillments of the world. A Meeting by the River is Isherwood's daring, ruthless, and joyfully comic meditation on the question of whether God exists. Two brothers confront each other in a monastery beside the Ganges. One plans to renounce the world, 
The other tries to stop him. Oliver, how lucky you are to have a brother like me. Dominic West stars as Patrick, irresistibly charming and accustomed to success. Patrick, why are you going to Calcutta? I must know why he's doing this. Kyle Soller is his younger brother Oliver, committed to a path of anonymous devotion. God is either nowhere or everywhere. Penelope Wilton is their mother. If this new religion of yours is any good, why don't you use it to help me? Who is right about love? What does it mean to be saved? Are you going to tell him about us? Are you mad? He's a monk. But don't monks know the facts of life? They try hard to forget them. Oh, Patrick! Directed by Anthony Page. Adapted by Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi from Isherwood's last novel, A Meeting by the River. Join us for the culminating episodes of The Animals Podcast. Sooner or later, you might have to ask yourself if there wasn't some truth in what I believe. Considering your way of life, wouldn't that be a bit inconvenient? Listen online at theanimalspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at Animals Podcast. Oh, 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 oh,